0: Well, good morning. Glad you're here this morning. Do you have any moments in your life that uh, are kind of stuck in time, moments that regardless of how much time has passed, you can still remember them like they're yesterday, okay? You have some of these moments. You know, for me, I have a few of those moments. One of those moments is I'm five or six years old, and I'm sitting in my brother's room, red carpet, red beanbag chair playing Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega Genesis, okay? That's, that's early 90s. That's early 90s written all over it, okay? And my brother paused the game, and he said, Andy, do you know if, if you die today, are you going to heaven? Okay? And he said, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? And as a five or six-year-old being around the church, growing up in the church, understanding the stories, I never actually made that decision for myself. And so I still remember this. I remember the, the, the sonic music in the background as I prayed the prayer with my brother to accept Jesus. And certainly my understanding of what it looks like to follow Jesus over the past 20 years has changed and matured. But I still, I, still, I still credit that moment. I still look at that moment and say, that's when I made my decision. Now, there are some of you here, that's your story. You have been a Christ follower from a very early age. You grew up in the church. You understood who God was and his plan for your life. And so uh, you are here as a mature Christ follower who has been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And... There are others here that that was your story, but somewhere along the way, you walked away from God, you walked away from your relationship with Jesus, and so you're back, you're trying to figure things out, you're trying to reconnect with this, this church thing, with God, but uh, it's still a bit fuzzy, and there are others that, you know, that story couldn't be further from the truth when talking about your childhood and your experience with the church and with God and with other Christians. And so I just want to say this morning, I'm glad you're here. Wherever you are on that spectrum, whatever your story and experience has been, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um... I think God has something for us this morning, and regardless of what your past has been, regardless of what your experiences have been, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God just to meet us, that he would do something in our midst over the next 30, 40 minutes. God, we are, we are here. Something brought us here, whether it was uh, circumstances that we planned for or not, whatever the circumstances is, we're sitting in this room, and we are waiting for you to show up and to do something in our lives. And so, God, I do pray that over the next few minutes that you would speak to us, that you would be very present, and that we would feel uh, the call of you on our lives this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you were here with us last week, you know that we started a series called Formed. It's a a six-week series on the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And, and we spent a lot of time last week trying to make this study, make this book a little less intimidating, because we've talked about how Jeremiah is an intimidating book. It's long, and it's repetitive, and it's not chronological. And so we set the theological and historical context for the book. We, we explained that God had this relationship with Israel and a covenant, and they were, there were some certain, certain things that they were supposed to do, and God was going to keep his end and be their God. But over the course of generations, they fell far from the covenant. They didn't honor God with their lives, with their worship, and so they're about to enter this very embarrassing and dark and confusing season, which is exile. They're going to live as strangers and as foreigners in a pagan land in the nation of Babylon as a result of their sin. And so over the next five weeks now, we're going to take a look at some major themes that come up as you read through the book. Because as you read through the book, even though it's somewhat repetitive, even though it's not chronological, there are some, some major themes that kind of bubble to the surface that, that because it's repetitive, you start, to, you start to recognize, you start to pick up on. And one of those themes is this theme of idolatry. Israel has a massive idolatry problem. They have, they have strayed far from the one true God, and they've exchanged that for the local gods, the local deities, who, for a variety of reasons. And the book uh, is, just, is just littered with references to their idolatry. We, don't, we obviously don't have time to look at them all. There are a few that I do want to look at because they're so rich. They're so pointed. They're full of imagery. There are dozens of others, but today I want to look at a few. One is in Jeremiah 2. This is kind of a, a description of... A, a, A description of what has happened to the nation of Israel. What they have done in relation to idolatry. It will be on the screen. You can follow along. It says this. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through the land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. And the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with me or with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Israel has a massive idolatry problem. It goes on a little later in verse 26. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to Wood, get this, they say to Wood, you are my father. And to the stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. And yet, when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Well, where then are the gods that you made for yourselves? Let, let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. They have a massive idolatry problem. And the question this morning is, do we have a massive Idolatry problem. Do we have a massive idolatry problem? My guess, I don't. I don't want to speak for you. My guess is you don't have a little statue on your nightstand that you pray to each night, that you have named and that you ask for rain and for sun and things like that. My guess is you don't do that. If you do, we we have a group for you. We'll we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> but my guess is that our idolatry is a little more subtle. Our idolatry is is deeply embedded into the way that we live, the things that we worship, the things that we trust. I don't think it's any less repulsive to God. I don't think it's any less dangerous. In fact, you could make the argument that it's more dangerous the kind of idolatry that we engage in. Do we have a massive idolatry problem? You know, I came across uh, some helpful distinctions of of what, what are some definitions of idols. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, this is just some, some broad categories that kind of help frame up when we talk about idols, what, what types of things are we talking about. There may be other categories or maybe idols that don't fit neatly into some of these categories, but this might give us a frame of reference. Uh, some things that are idols in our lives are things that entice us. Uh, things that we wish to obtain, the, the lifestyle of the rich and famous, the celebrities, the supports, the sports, the entertainment, those things that we, that we love and we entertain ourselves with and we focus our lives around. What about things that we fear? Our enemies, uh, we make a habit out of avoiding them or getting revenge to them. Our, our, our health, our sickness, we become so obsessed with making sure we don't get sick That it actually becomes an idol in our life. Maybe the broadest category is things that we trust. You know, our our bank accounts, our education, our stuff, whatever that is for you. Things that we tend to put too much trust in. Or maybe things that we need. Things like our jobs. Things like our, our homes. Things like purpose. Relationships. These are categories, potentially, of things in our lives that can take the place of God. 16th century reformer, German reformer, Martin Luther, in his catechism. It was an instruction training for young people in the church that they go through in the Lutheran church. This is how he described idolatry in his catechism. He says, "...to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole hearts. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God." anything that we trust on, anything that we depend on wholly in place of God. There's, but that, that's one side of it. There's another side of it, too, not just the things that we trust on and rely on, but there's also this, this worship side of things as well, things that we worship. Uh, Christopher Wright, who, we, who helped us out a little bit last week, he's an Old Testament scholar that had some helpful insights, he says this, he says, Idolatry is when creation is then credited with a potency that belongs only to God. It is sacralized, worshipped, and treated as that from which ultimate meaning can be derived. A great reversal happens. God, who should be worshipped, becomes an object to be used. Creation, which is for our use and blessing, becomes the object of our worship. Idolatry dethrones God and enthrones creation. It's that thing or that set of things That we worship in place of God. When we think about worship, when we think about worshiping God or worshiping anything else, we think about things like uh, something that we make sacrifices for, something that we love, uh, something that we talk about often, we brag about, we tell everyone about because they're so happy about, something something that we think about often, something that we attribute greatness to. Something that we prioritize, something that, that is central in our life, those are, th- those are, that's worship language. That's why many of you are here this morning. You have prioritized this gathering, you've prioritized your faith, you've prioritized learning, and so you're here, you're worshiping God. Well, what, is, what are those things that we worship that aren't God? Things that we talk about, spend way too much time on, way too many resources and too much energy. We think about it way too often, we talk about it way too often something that is central in our life that shouldn't be. You know, before we go on, we have a few more minutes together. Before we go on, I think it would be appropriate if you took some time, just even right now, to identify an idol or two in your life. I I don't know how helpful the rest of our time will be if you don't have something in your mind that you're thinking about. Because as we talk about idolatry, we talk about some of the detriments of idolatry and some of the roots of idolatry. If there's not something in your mind that you can point to, it's it's a very generic discussion. It's an ancient discussion. And so, real quick, if you just want to take a second and say, well, maybe it maybe isn't fully baked, but maybe there's something in your life that you can start, to, well, maybe this is idolatry. And as we talk more, maybe you'll either become convinced that it is or convinced that it's not, but I think it's important to identify one. And I'll start. I'll go first. An idol in my life, as I think about the definition, an idol in my life is food, Okay? And before you defend me and say, you don't really mean that. You just mean that you want to lose a few pounds. You don't really mean that an idol is food. Let me explain. I think if I look at the definition of an idol, it's something that I trust, something that I rely on, something that I worship, which is things that I talk about way too much, I spend time and energy on, I prioritize, I plan my schedule around, I start thinking about this, I have to come to grips that food is an idol in my life. It takes takes up way more space than it should physically and emotionally. And I say that I say that to underscore the fact that morally neutral things can be idols. Things that have that have no that aren't even on the moral spectrum, food, money, your house, your relationships, things that are morally neutral can become idols because the issue isn't that thing. The issue isn't the food. The issue isn't the bank account. The issue isn't the job. The issue is our propensity to put things in God's place that shouldn't be there. The issue isn't the idol. The issue is our soul. This isn't a food issue. This isn't a health issue for me. This is a soul issue. This is a heart issue for me. Now, everyone that struggles with weight doesn't have food as an idol. But for me, I just know myself, I know that when I have a hard day and I'm stressed, which I know is not supposed to happen when you're a pastor at Parkview, you never have bad days. When I have a bad day and I'm stressed, my first thought is to go get something to eat, to drive through somewhere on the way home, because that helps me, or so I think. When Brittany and I have a disagreement, which I know, again, pastors aren't supposed to have disagreements with their wives, but... When I have a district, my first instinct is I gotta go eat something because that will that will soothe some of my frustration. I spend time, I spend energy, I center things around this thing that's not helpful and is not God. So what is it for you? I, again I what is it is it your job? Is it your quest for ultimate purpose? Is it your bank account that you check daily to make sure there's enough in there? Is it your retirement fund that you're just waiting to kick in so that you can retire? Is it your kids? Is it your spouse? Is it your grandkids? Is it your need to always be right? Is it your need to have the best reputation in your workplace or your community? Is it entertainment? Celebrities? Sports games? Just sports. I don't have to say sports games. Just sports. (laughs) What is it? Is it that vacation that you're just constantly thinking about, that you work towards, that, that Caribbean island that you just can't wait to go to, and, and then once you're back, you just start planning the next one, because that's the God in our lives. Is it your education? Is that scholarship that you're chasing after? Is it that, that team that you're hoping to make? What it? What is it? What's that thing that you trust in place of God, that thing that you worship? In place of God. I think regardless of what it is, there are some things that tie our idols together. There are some things that lie at the root of idolatry, regardless of what that thing is. I think one of those things is a lack of trust. Think at the heart, at the root of idolatry, there's a lack of trust. I mean, this was the case in Israel's history. They, they have the one true God who is their God, who has said, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be your God. But just in case just in case he doesn't follow through, let's add the sun god over here to make sure we have sun. Let's add the the water god over here. Let's add the fertility god. Let's add the, the warrior god for protection. Just in case God doesn't do what he said he was going to do. Just in case he doesn't follow through. What's the harm in having some some backup backup options? What's what's the harm of hedging our bets? We love to have options. We love to be prepared. I think at the root of our idolatry is a lack of trust. Well, maybe maybe the way God said to live isn't the best way to live. And so I'm going to engage in these practices. And if it is and if it either way I you know I get, kind of get the best of both worlds. Maybe maybe my loneliness can be can be met with this over here instead of with God. Maybe God said he was going to provide for me, but I better earn as much as I could possibly earn so that so that I'm secure just in case God doesn't come through. I think lying at the heart of our idolatry is a lack of trust that God is God and that God's word is God's word and that He will follow through. I think there's also a, a convenience that's at the heart of our idolatry. Again, the case in ancient Israel, it was very convenient to worship idols. God had some specific instructions that part of the covenant of ways that they should go about worshiping God. They were to go to the temple in Jerusalem. They were to offer certain sacrifices. There were festivals. There were feasts. Well, these other idols didn't require that of them. It was very easy. It was localized. They could, put, they could put the idol on their nightstand and they could pray to it and they could worship it. And there, were no, there, were, there was no moral expectation of them the way the one true God had of them. They could do whatever they wanted. All they needed to do was just pray to the idol, maybe make a certain sacrifice. But it was, it was way more freeing in their mind because it was convenient. They didn't have to explain to their, their neighbor who's from a different part of the world why, why they don't worship his gods. They can just add their gods to the pantheon. And for us, how convenient is idolatry? It's a few clicks on your computer and you are into your bank account and you can look at it and you can feel safe. It's a few clicks on Amazon and you've, you've met your void with whatever you need to do shopping-wise. It's a phone call to your spouse. It's a, it's a quick five-minute run to Wendy's. It's whatever it is. It's quick. It's easy. It's pulling your phone out and trusting. It's so convenient. I think at the root of our idolatry also, if we're honest, uh, is ourselves. Idolatry is a pretty one-way street. It's pretty transactional. You turn to idols because you think they can do something for you. They th- you think they can meet a need for you. It's transactional. There's no, there's no relationship re- involved when Israel is worshiping Baal or these other local gods. There's there's no relationship there. It's what can this God do for me? What do I need to do to ensure that this God will do what it needs to do for me? It's a transaction. Worshiping God actually requires something of us. It actually, it actually invokes a relationship. You know, it's really funny. In, in Jeremiah 2, the passage we just read, and in other passages, when God takes Israel to task for their idolatry, he doesn't, he doesn't appeal as often as you would think to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, well, this was the law. You're not supposed to have any other gods before me. You're not supposed to make any graven images. There's, there's actually kind of a startling lack of appeal to the law. It's all covenant language. It's all relational language. It's all, I'm your God. We were, you were my people. You saw how I, how I brought you out of Egypt. You saw the land that I prepared for you. We had this thing going, and you, and you left. What gives? Why did you do that? Why did you trade me for this cheap substitute? What are you doing? It's, it's relational language because worshiping God's relationship, idolatry, is transactional. And it revolves around ourselves. You know, David Wells, who is a, a theologian out on the East Coast, uh, over at Gordon, he said this about the role of ourselves in idolatry because one of our biggest idols is ourselves. And he said this. He said that the self is as powerful an organizing center as any god or goddess on the market. It's as powerful as an organizing center as any god or goddess on the market. We love ourselves. So what's the big deal? You say, well, okay, there's, I understand what's at the root of it. I understand that there's some of these things in my life maybe have too high of a place, but why is it so dangerous? Why was God so upset? I think there are some inherent dangers To idolatry there are some detriments that are very hard to recover from one of them the primary one i think being that idols cannot fulfill they just can't and one author i read said they never fail to fail (laughs) that is what they are best at they fail because they're not god they cannot, they cannot do for you what, what we need God to do in our hearts and our souls. They can't fulfill. They, they don't measure up. There, there's, a, there's a really, it's kind of actually funny if you have a twisted sense of humor. In Jeremiah 10, there's this, there's this description. Again, there's this chock full of idol language in Jeremiah, but there's this description of the idols that, that Israel is worshiping, that Judah is worshiping, okay? And Jeremiah is having some fun at their expense. He says this, in Jeremiah ten chapter three or uh, verse three, it says the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree from the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel, and they adorn it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with a hammer and nails so it will, will not totter. And it says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak; they must be carried because they cannot walk. They do not fear them; they can do no harm nor can they do any good. They're powerless. They can't do anything. In fact, the description here, the joke here, is that these idols that that they're praying to for for security, for the sun, for rain, or for whatever, they're so helpless that actually the Israelites are the ones that have to move them from place to place. The Israelites are the ones that have to to bolt them to the wall so they won't fall over. The Israelites are playing the role of God for these idols. They have to protect them. They have to provide for the idols' basic needs and resources. It's so backwards, but we trust in them. We have this weird obsession with idols, but they're powerless. They cannot do anything. In fact, we don't have time, unfortunately, but if you, if you want to read this at home or something, in the same chapter, verse 11 through 16, there's this contrast. It goes back and forth between idols and God. It says, idols can't do this, but God is sovereign over everything. Idols can't do this, but God is sovereign and more powerful, and he can do this. And so the nation of Israel is sitting in exile and they're being reminded of this description of God that he is bigger and better than all the idols that they traded him for. And so they're, they're getting on board. They're remembering who God was. And then the, remember we talked about how editors compiled this book after the exile. The editors also kind of have a sick sense of humor. The editors throw this, this sucker punch to the nation of Israel. Verse 11 through 16, it's talking about how great God is, how he's more powerful than idols. And then verse 17 they immediately remind Israel of their exile. They say, gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. As if to say, you had the one true God, you traded him away for these idols, and then remember when you had to pack up your bags and leave. Remember that most devastating event in your history up to this point? There's a kind of a similar passage in Jeremiah 2 where God is talking about Israel's trade, trading God for idols, and he says... He says that my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You know, in in ancient world, water was everything. Water was the life source of the entire community. And so, so God says you had this spring, this spring of living water. You had unlimited access to this water. You could have it whenever you wanted. You had life. And rather than take advantage of that, you traded it for your own cistern, your own holding tank, which you built, and you didn't build it very well, and it's cracked, and it doesn't even hold the water that you are able to obtain. It's a cheap substitute. It's not even on the same level. We do that. I do that. When we trust in idols, and they never fail to fail. It might feel good for a day, for a week. But they cannot fulfill our deepest longing. The other detriment is this. When we practice idolatry, we dilute the glory and the worship of God alone. Okay, so by nature of idolatry, what we're doing when we are worshiping an idol, whatever that thing that you maybe have identified in your life, we're taking this thing, creation, whatever it is, and we're elevating it to the role of God, right? But it, can't, it obviously can't get to God's level. And so in order to make this a God, not only do we have to elevate whatever that thing is, we also have to demote God so they're on the same level. Okay, you understand? So now you have a watered-down God. You have a worship that whatever, let's say your idol is your TV, your phone, or your house. Whatever worship we ascribe to that thing, we're also ascribing to God. And that's a problem. <laughs> Because God deserves much more worship. The worship that we give him is now diluted because it's the same worship that we're giving these other things. And on the flip side, we also dilute God's influence and God's role in our own lives. Because now there are three, four, five other things that we're looking to. There are three or four, five other things in the pantheon. And so in addition to God being a central figure in our life, these other three or four things are a central figure into our life. And so not only is our worship of God diluted, but God's role in our life is diluted. There's no more room for him. You don't need him anymore. His role becomes smaller and smaller. It would be like this. It would be like uh, around tax time coming up. You guys ready for tax season? Sweet. Okay, awesome. The government, I'm not going to get political, I promise. Okay. You guys all right? Okay. But the government says, we need some more cash. We need some more cash in the, in this, in the system. And so this tax season, we're going to mail everyone their own printing press, their own mint. is this, this beautiful little machine that will take home mint. And all you need is one $100 bill, and then you can print as many $100 bills as you need. And so everyone receives their package from the government. They go and they get their $100 bill, and they start to make copies, and they start to make copies. And then you go to the store, and you're about to purchase something, and you you pull out your $100 bill, and you go to pay for it. And the cashier looks at you and says, "I what is, what is this?" He said, "Well, it's a, it's a $100 bill." This is, this usually costs $100. And he says, well, it used to cost $100, but now there's a billion of these $100 bills just floating around because everyone's making them. This doesn't, this doesn't mean anything to me anymore. You're going to need a lot more of these in order to buy what you used to buy. Or on the flip side, maybe you're a, a parent or a grandparent, maybe maybe your your gift of choice is, is cash, which I advocate is the, is the best gift going, okay, if you, if you need good gift advice. And so you, you're used to giving your, your kid or your grandkid a $100 bill for Christmas. That, that's what you would do. And so usually your, your kid or your grandkid is, is super excited about that. They, they're proud of it. They put it in their bank account. They say thank you. They write you a thank you note. Well, this year you give them a $100 bill, and they look at it, and they're like, what else? What else do you have? I don't, I don't want this anymore. These are, these are common occurrences now. When we have idols in our lives, we dilute the meaning and the purpose of our worship. It doesn't mean as much anymore because we're also worshiping these things over here. And not only that, when God tries to influence and impact and intervene and intersect in our lives, we have all these other things that are intervening and intersecting in our lives. And so there's, it's, he has less of a role. His role is watered down. Listen, idols, man, idols are dangerous. Idols are dangerous things. And so I wonder this morning if... As you diagnosed your idol, whatever that thing was, I wonder if this morning you would be interested in making a commitment to God. I wonder if this morning you'd be interested in saying to God, you know what, I'm done with these idols because they don't work. They don't fulfill, they leave me wanting, and they minimize the role of you in my life. How do you turn from idols? Scripture is full of of encouragements to turn from idolatry. Uh, you might you might be a really practical person. And you're already thinking of ways to root that thing out of your life. You're already thinking, well, I need to stop doing this. I need to cancel that vacation. I need to not look at my bank account so much. I need to not rely so much on this. Per-. Whatever that thing is, I need to turn my phone off and be more present. Whatever that idol is, you're already thinking about practical ways to get rid of your idol. And I, I think there's some merit to that. I think those are good best practices, whatever you've come up with. But the reality is is if we don't, if we don't replace that real estate that idols had in our hearts that were still susceptible to idolatry. I mean, the way to get rid of idols, the way to turn from idols is to turn to Jesus. That's how we get rid of idols in our life. When we turn from idols, we turn to Jesus. And as we turn to Jesus and as we focus on him and as we worship him, these other things that had such a pull in our lives, these other things that, that used to be so important, these other things that used to replace God are far less important. They're far less attractive. They're far less tempting. When we worship the one true God, when we put Jesus in his place. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if, if you're willing, if you're sitting here today and you say, well, I know I have this thing in my life or this handful of things, and I know it's taking the place of God. I trust it. I worship it. It's not right. It minimizes God's role in my life. We have some, some broken pieces of pottery down here on the stage. So So be careful. But some broken pieces of pottery down here on the stage. And I wonder if over the course of the next two songs, you would be interested in coming up and just writing on the back of one of these pieces of pottery, whatever it is your idol is, and just putting it in the basket as a way to say to God, listen, I'm done. Like, I'm done with this. It doesn't... It doesn't fulfill. It's, it's cheapening my relationship with you. It's not right. It's, it's all out of whack. And so whatever this thing is, I'll start to take some practical next steps to root it out. But my first thing i got to do is i got to make the commitment to turn from them and to turn towards Jesus. For some of you, this could be the first time you've ever made that decision. This, you've come here and you've been chasing after all sorts of things. None of them have fulfilled. And so maybe today is the day where you say, listen, this is it. I've been thinking about it. I know it's not healthy. And so today I'm gonna to follow Jesus since the first time I've ever made that decision. For others, this is a recalibration of your heart. So over the course of the next few songs, we'll have a few minutes. You can make your way forward. I'll start. I'm gonna put food on the back of mine. I'm gonna put it in there and I'm gonna say, you know what, I'm done with this. I can't run to this thing anymore. I can't elevate this. This this has got to go if I want to have a full, rich relationship. Jesus.
1: So I've been reading this book called Jeremiah. And uh, maybe you heard of it. Uh, and one thing that amazes me is how relevant um, the events that unfold in that book are to my own life. And Jeremiah says, You know, the human heart is deceitfully wicked among all things. And uh, that is so true for me. And I have this tendency to want to Put a lot of different things before God, and uh, I think we all do that, and um, we need forgiveness for that. And God offers us forgiveness in Jesus. So if you've you've decided to follow Him, uh, that's this is the the, today's the first time you've decided. You said I'm really gonna I'm I'm gonna follow after Jesus. I'm gonna be a, a follower of His. Would you just let us know? There's that little tear off on the bulletin. Just write your name and just let us know you made that decision because we wanna pray for you. And, and, uh, and if there's anything that we can do to help you along in your journey, we, we're glad to do it. But uh, just let us know. I hope you can come back next week because we're gonna continue on uh, in, in, the, in the book. And um, as I've been reading it, next week I wanna share with you something that I, I found in one of the chapters. It's kind of a crazy deal. Uh, God has Jeremiah write this letter to the, those uh, Jewish people who are in exile. He says, Jeremiah, write this letter and tell the people this. And what God says to the exiles is just unbelievable. I mean, it's so astounding to me what he tells them to do, how he tells them to live in the context of Babylon. And um, the relevance of that um, for our lives uh, is, is quite incredible. So come back next week. We're gonna take a look at that letter together and, uh, and see what it, what it means for us. Okay. Uh, thanks for being here and uh, if, if you uh, have some things on your heart that you'd like to talk to somebody about, some of our prayer team folks will be down in the front. Maybe you've had a great week. A lot of good things have happened and you just want to tell somebody about it and thank God for it that you can come down and talk to them. They're glad to hear great stories. Or if you've had a troubling week and you just want someone to pray with, they're here for you as well. Okay? So uh, let me pray for us. We'll be dismissed and uh, I hope you have a great week. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this moment wouldn't just be um, sort of a a passing experience, but I I pray that it would be a, a solidifying one, one that would put this marker down in our lives where we say, you know what, I'm done with the idols. I'm done with the idols. I want to follow hard after Jesus and to be in relationship with you, my creator. I pray that that would be the, the prayer and, and, the, and, the, and the desire of each and every one of us. And I ask that as the church leaves the building this morning, as we go back out into our lives, that uh, you would give us the, the courage and the strength to brush aside the idols and to worship you and you alone. And in doing that, point people to Jesus. May your hand of grace and peace now rest on your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.